Jeremiah chapter 17, barrenness or blessing? Uh, I don't know about you, but I want God's blessing. Um, spiritually, physically, I want God's blessing. And to have that blessing from the almighty hand of God. Uh, and I trust that you would agree with me. That's what you want as well. And uh, let's go ahead and dismiss the children at this time. I forgot to do that, sorry. Uh, children will be dismissed at this time. But the hand of God, to have His blessing. Um, and I think sometimes we're, we have to be careful about this because a lot of people who will, um, if I could say it this way, say they have the hand of God and the blessing of God in their life because they may have physical things or may have material wealth. And a lot of times we can misconstrue valuable things or material things and they really may not have anything absolutely at all to do with God's blessing. Um, I think sometimes as we say negatively, God gets a lot of credit for things He had nothing to do with. And uh, both negatively and, and positively. And so we need to be careful that we don't misconstrue this. But as I was reading in Jeremiah, we find a, a pretty interesting scenario here that takes place. A scenario between God's blessing or barrenness. And uh, as we read it, as we come together, I think you'll agree that uh, you'll want God's blessing as well. And uh, before we do this, let's, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank You so much once again for the opportunity to look at Your Word. I thank You and praise You, God, that we have Your Word, that it's sure, that we can stand on it, we can rest in it. And God, I just thank You for the privilege that we have this morning of opening up and reading it. And I pray, God, that You'd speak to our hearts this morning. Challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged and convict us where we need convicting, Lord. And, and Lord, we just pray that You'd encourage where encouragement is needed as well. And God, I pray that You would be glorified and lifted high this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 17. I want to go ahead and read the first 13 verses as we begin this morning. It says, The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. And on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherah poles by the green trees on the high hills. My mountains in the countryside, I will give up your wealth and all your treasures as plunder because of the sin of your high places in all your borders. And let me just stop there just for a moment at the end of verse 3. A high place in the Old Testament, not in every circumstances, but in most every circumstance, is, a, if I could say it this way, it was a shortcut. Uh, there were places that God had designated as places of worship. And sometimes those places of worship weren't real, uh, really uh, accessible. They weren't real easy to get to. And sometimes it took a little work to get there. And so what different groups would sometimes do is they would set up a high place, quote-unquote, on the top of a mountain, on the top of a higher hill, at a higher, higher level elevation. And at that point, they would make a makeshift temple. It was a substitute for the real place. And so, in essence, it was a shortcut. I really don't want to go all the way over there to where the temple is or where the God's established place is, so I'll kind of make a shortcut and do it here rather than there. So it was a shortcut, in essence. Look on verse 4. It says, You will, on your own, relinquish your inheritance that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know. I will make you... Um, in verse 4, for you... Or, for you have set my anger on fire, it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. 
The man who trusts in mankind, who makes human flesh his strength, and turns his heart from the Lord, is cursed. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah, and he cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is the, indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Now think about this just for a minute. The man who trusts in mankind, that man is what? Cursed. On the opposite side, the man who places trust in the Lord is blessed. So really, you see a, a two-sided coin here. One man is cursed, one man is blessed. And it's a matter of his focus. If his focus is going to be on mankind and be cursed, or it will be on God and be blessed. So just very preliminarily, we can see that if we want God's blessing, our focus and trust has to be where? On the Lord. No other place. And here's the downfall. And we're going to get into it in just a little bit more in a minute. But here's why we cannot trust in man. Look at verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. And I love what the Holman Christian says here. And incurable. In and of itself, it is incurable. Outside of God's working, it is incurable. That's why we need God. And then it goes on to say, who can understand it? It says, I, Yahweh, examine the mind. I test the heart to, give e to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. He who makes a fortune unjustly is like a partridge that hatches eggs it didn't lay. In the middle of his days, his riches will abandon him, so in the end he will be a fool. A throne of glory on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of the living water. So right off the bat here we have the idea there is a blessing and there is a curse depending on where our trust is. Um, as we get right here in the beginning in, in chapter 17, verse 1, it says the sin of Judah is written. I mean, think about this just for a moment. The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus. Now think about this just for a moment. Those of you that are in the new technology, you got your little uh, iPads and, and uh, Nexuses and all these different little tablets, and some of you aren't there yet, but you'll probably get there eventually. Uh, but you have these little styluses. Remember the Palm Pilots that have the styluses and you know all these different little things that we used to have to promote technology. But a stylus, it's a pen. It's a, a pen and it says it's made out of what? Iron. It says, look at verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus with a diamond point. Now it's been told to us that the diamond is the hardest substance... One of the hardest substances on earth. In fact, oftentimes they will use diamond-studded drill bits, diamond-studded saw blades to cut through things that are very difficult to cut through. Because a diamond has the ability to cut where other objects cannot. And what he says here is, is the sin of Judah 
the things that Judah is guilty of, the, the sin that has overtaken them, said it is written with an iron stylus with a point from a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. And I think I find this a little bit interesting. Because as you look in the culture of the day, as you look back in the history of the day, you find out what's unique about this. And here it is. Uh, Oftentimes it was a common practice to engrave the names of gods and idols on animals' horns. And then uh, to have near them as reminders. Uh, When I was in India, I saw some of this, not a lot of it, but I can see, I saw as we were walking or driving down the roads, you see the water buffalo. And on their horns, they would have uh, sometimes a color, sometimes a pattern, sometimes a shape that would be connected to it. But these horns would identify not only the owner of it, but also which temple they belonged to. So it was a marking that would point to others where my trust is. It's in this temple, or it's in that temple. So it was a common practice to take this iron stylus that's studded with a diamond point and write the names of their gods in the horns of their animals, and then to keep them nearby so that they could be close to them and be reminded of them. But think about this for a moment. It says, it's also the sins of Judah were written on the tablet of their heart. And then you see down in verse 9, the heart is more deceitful above than anything else. The human heart, what we refer to as the seed of our emotions, it's deceitful. Um, let's go on here. So the question is, what were the sins of Judah that, that he's referring to here? Well, let's look back in the previous chapter, chapter 16, and let's begin reading verse 10. In essence, you will see this theme. They have abandoned the Lord. It says, when you tell these people all these things, they will say to you, why has the Lord declared all this great disaster against us? What is our guilt? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? I mean, they have this question. It probably is a legitimate question. What did we do? What is our, what is our crime? Why, what is our guilt? It says, then you will answer them, because your fathers abandoned me, this is the Lord's declaration. And followed other gods, served them, worshipped them. Indeed, they abandoned me and did not keep my instruction. Look at verse 12. This is an amazing indictment. You did more evil than your fathers. Look, each one of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart, not obeying me. So I will hurl you from this land into a land that you and your fathers are not familiar with. There you will worship other gods both day and night, for I will not grant you grace. Wow. What an indictment. What a harsh reality for these men and these women who have turned their hearts away from God. And now God's basically saying, you're going to suffer the result of your choices. You are going to suffer the consequences for the choices that you have made. Verse 14, however, take note, he says. The days are coming, the Lord's declaration, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt. But rather, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of the north and from all, from all the other lands where He had banished them. 
for I will return them to their land that I gave them to their ancestors. Verse 16, I am about to send for many fishermen. This is the Lord's declaration. They will fish for them. Then I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt down on every mountain and hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my gaze takes in all their ways. Think about that. There is no hiding. It says, they are not concealed from me, and their guilt is not hidden from my sight. Think for a moment that they can escape the eye of God. Not even for a moment. It says, I will first repay them double for their guilt and sin, because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the lifelessness of their detestable and abhorrent idols. Is God real happy with them at the moment? Oh boy. God is upset with them. God is saying, look, you want to know why I'm upset? You want to know why I'm, I'm throwing this, uh, these circumstances on you? This is why. You have all but abandoned me. You have done everything in your own might. You have turned to false idols and gods. And he says, now you're going to face my wrath. Verse 19 says, Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in time of distress, the nations will come to you from the ends of the earth and they will say, our fathers inherited only lies, worthless idols of no benefit at all. Can one make gods for himself? But they are not gods. Therefore, I am about to inform them. (laughs) You think. He is about to not only inform them, they're about to, to inherit some wrath. It says, in this time I will make them know my power and my might. And then they will know that my name is Yahweh. See, every time man makes a choice, there's a consequence with that choice. And for this time frame, they have made choices to abandon God, to do their own thing, to follow false idols and false gods. They've went to a high place. They've already made a shortcut from the, the God in His, in his uh, circumstances. And now they are going to face the consequences of their choices. I have to wonder, you know, we say in our day and age we may not have idols. We may not have a statue in the corner of our house. We may not have things that we're bowing down to on a regular basis. But as I've said many times, according to Scripture... Anything, anything that we give more time and affection and focus to has the potential of becoming an idol in our life. And so when we ask ourselves, as we ponder our own lives, where's our trust? We need to be careful that it does not slip from off, our focus doesn't slip from being on God to being on things or people or circumstances. Our focus has to remain on God, right? If we want God's blessing, if we want God to work, if we want God to be glorified in our lives, we have to keep our focus on Him and make sure that we don't uh, put our affections and our time and our, our energy into things that won't last for eternity. Reminder, only two things that last for eternity are what? Souls of men and the Word of God. Everything else will be tested by fire. Right? So we need to make sure that we're focused on the right things. But turn your attention here now to verses 5-8 through once again. Chapter 17. Curse and blessing. This is what the Lord says. The man who trusts in mankind 
who makes human flesh his strength and turns his heart from the Lord is cursed. So right off the bat, he gives us two pictures here. There's a picture of a, of a man who turns his back on the Lord and he places his trust on mankind. And then there's a picture of a man who keeps his focus on the Lord. And the man who places his focus on man, he says he's like this bush. And this uh, heath, this shrub. It, it, it's, it's like experiencing barrenness in a dry land where there is no water. It says he will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see what good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. In other words, God says, when you take your focus off me, you'll become barren. And what do we mean by that? I can only imagine in my own life that if I were to take my focus off God, there is going to be a, a total sense of where's my purpose? Where's my joy? What am I living for? There's a barrenness that comes in and it cannot be quenched. It's a thirst that will not be satisfied. And a man pictured as a healthy tree, he's the man, according to verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like that tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Look at the contrast. There will always be a noticeable, visible contrast between those living for God and those that are not living for God. You ever notice that? Um, yesterday I had the opportunity to talk to one, to one lady, and she looks at me and she says, I need a dose of religion. And I said, no, ma'am, you don't need a dose of religion. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the difference. And the person who puts their faith and trust in the Lord versus the person who doesn't, there is a contrast. And the contrast is pictured by these two bushes. You see, being a Christian doesn't remove yourself from the environment of the troubles of this world. You see, both of these bushes are in a desertous place, right? Right? You see that? But one bush is affected. The other one has deep roots, planted toward the stream, and the drought doesn't affect it. See, we all go through struggles, right? We've been talking about that. There's always going to be a quote-unquote however. There's always going to be a, a circumstance. But the question is, where's our focus? What are we dwelling on? What captivates our mind? So if you look at the contrast, one lives strong, the other one dries up. But he who trusts in man is cursed. In fact, just for a moment, you can leave your finger there in, 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 in Jeremiah, but in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, it says this, Woe to rebellious children! This is the Lord's declaration. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They make an alliance, but against my will. Pilling sin, or piling sin on top of sin. They set out to go down to Egypt without asking my advice in order to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection and take refuge in Egypt's shadow. What's he saying here? So there's consequences. And you keep doing this, that's the mark of rebellion. That's the cursing. It's the idea of being doomed, headed for failure. In Psalm chapter 146, 
Let me just quickly read this verse for you. Psalm 146 and verse 3 says this. It says, Do not trust in nobles, in man who cannot save. Because when his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground on the day his plans die. What's he saying here? You cannot trust in man. You cannot trust in man. Uh, question. Several years ago when the stock market crashed, why did it crash? Man, I mean, after all, we have these well-known advisors and we got those that work Wall Street and they have all the wisdom of, of the stock market and they have the wisdom of what businesses are doing and yet it went... <clears throat> what happens when we trust in man? Failure comes, right? And over and over, we need to learn from this. Why is he cursed? Because he relies on man. His heart is departed from the Lord. You see this from our text in Jeremiah chapter 17. The first part says, The man who trusts in mankind, who makes human flesh his strength, and look at this next part of the verse, and turns his heart from the Lord. In other words, he made a choice. The first part of the choice from the verse there in verse 5 is that he looks to man. He puts his confidence in man. And then the second part of that choice is that he turns his heart from the Lord. Nobody put a gun to your head and said, you have to do this. Nobody says either do this or suffer. No, it's a choice. And every one of us, just like it says in Romans where he says, they that set their affections on the things of the world, it's a choice. And every day we, are, we have to contemplate the choice of keeping our focus on God or on the things of this world. I can either trust in the Lord or I can trust in man. But there's a consequence that comes with each of those choices. Their heart was turned from God to man. And we need to learn to be careful. I want to give you four examples just real quickly about people who experience the curse because they turned their heart from the Lord. The first one is in Second Chronicles chapter 15. You know the story. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But you remember King Asa? Asa was one of my heroes in the first part of the story. I mean, here's a man who is on fire for the Lord. Here's a man who just starts out going gangbusters, doing what's right. I mean, he takes down all the high places that we talked about. He goes in there and he has them all destroyed. He takes all the idols that his own grandmother had put up and tears them all down. Asa is on fire for God. And he goes against God and he says, God, it's nothing with them that have many or them that have no might. And he trusts, trusts God to destroy the enemies. He's on fire. Then something happens. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2, it says, So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa and all the Judah and Benjamin hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. What happened? All of a sudden, Asa takes his focus off God. And all of a sudden he's, oh my, what do I do? What do I do? And the enemy's coming in. And he goes, I got it. He goes over to this king over here. He says, hey, the king over here, they're coming against us. Your dad and my dad, they were buddies. 
They were friends. I tell you what, I'll give you this gold, I'll give you this silver, and you join my team, and then we can overtake them. See what he did? In Second Chronicles, it tells the story of how Asa took his eyes off God where they once were, and when he sought God, God was found of him, by him. And when he put his faith and trust in God, God destroyed the enemies. He destroyed the Ethiopians and all the other enemies that came against him. He had no, no problem. He says, God, whether they that have many or those, those that don't have many, no, no, no big deal, God. I know you can take care of it. And he takes his focus off of God and, hey, let's be buddies now. Your dad, my dad, good friends. I'll give you the gold, silver, you come on my team. And in the end, you find out that it's a lost out. Something changed in his heart. It says in, the, in chapter 16 that when he was older, he had this disease in his feet. But even in his disease, he didn't look to God. He looked to the magicians and the physicians to do everything that he wanted done. He, he forsook the blessings of God because he was too busy looking at man. How about Ezra? Chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, verse 22 is an interesting verse. It says, I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from the enemies during the journey. Since we had told him, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him. But his great anger is against all who abandon him. You want God's anger against you? Turn your back on him. God says there's anger towards those who turn their back on Him. Sometimes we have this idea that God is just a God of love. I mean, He's just a wonderful, loving God. And guess what? He is. But He's also a God of, of, of uh, great wrath and anger as well. When we live in sin, we must, have, we must expect that God's anger is going to be kindled against that. Sometimes we have this idea that, well, God is merciful and God is gracious and He's just gonna, He's just gonna turn His back and He'll kinda just let this one pass. We've forgotten that God is also a God of wrath. We forget that. We forget that, that when we live in sin, that angers the heart of God. And Ezra was reminding them here. He's found when you seek Him. But if you turn your back, God is against that. And he'll not let it go unpunished. In Jeremiah chapter 1, and verse 16, we see another example of this. Verse 16 says, I will pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. God says, I'm not for this. When we, do, when we take our focus off God, we remove our trust from Him. Now think about this. We're here in church for a reason, right? I hope we're here because we want to serve God and we want to grow and we want to learn and we want to draw closer to Him. And so I think I can safely say that we're not going to go home today and say, well, I think I'll just look elsewhere today. You see, I think Satan works more subtly than that. I think Satan works very subtly. I think Satan works in such a way that we go through a difficult time, and, and also we need some, we need some income, and we don't know what to do. So, so we kind of just like, well, we we forget to leave those things in God's hands. Or, you know, we have this the sickness or illness or or whatever, and 
Oh, we put our trust in what the doctors can do. See, I think Satan works a little more subtly. We don't purposely say, well, God, I got this one covered. Don't need you on this one, but thanks anyway. We don't act like that. But in our actions, in our daily processes, we sometimes take matters into our own hands. And he says in Jeremiah 1.16, that's exactly what they were doing. They were worshiping the works of their own hands. And they forgot. Wait, my focus should be on God. And in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9, he just reminds us, if you abandon me, he says you're going to experience the consequences of those choices. So we need to be careful. And he says overall, we have an awesome God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we forget that we have an awesome God. And He's there for us. And He's there every time we call on Him. And, and the story over and over in the Old Testament is that every time you call to God, He's there. But when you forsake Him, guess what? There's a consequence. It says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he will also reap. We have a God that when we are faithful, God is faithful. He's a God that loves us and cares for us. He talks about, just for a moment here, the barrenness of this consequence. It's like a shrub in the desert. There's no nourishment from the water. There's no life from the water. or from There's no water to, to bring nourishment. There's no anticipation of change. They're not looking for good to come because it's not going to. There's a consequence. There's no prosperity. It's a salt land where nothing can live. And God can cause you to not prosper if you would trust in man. And we need to be careful that that doesn't become our attitude. But, once again, there's a contrast. There's the man who places his trust in man, and there's the man who places his trust in God. And we see this in verse 8. Actually, verse 7. The man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards the stream. It doesn't fear when he comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Blessed. God's hand of enrichment in our lives. There's so many passages that talk about what it means to be blessed of God. It's amazing that sometimes we want to dictate what God's blessings are. And sometimes we tell others, well, I've been blessed. I have this, or I have this, or I have this, I have this. And we kind of associate the material things that God gives us or allows us to have as God's blessing. When in essence, it may not be. God's blessing is more than that. When I think of God's blessing, I think of just daily things. Daily, I have the opportunity to wake up and have breath and have life and have a family and have children and have the opportunity to have a a home, and a job. We take those things for granted. But that's not just material wealth. The peace and joy that we have from knowing the Lord is something that money can't buy. You know, there's so many things that money can buy, but there's much more that money can't touch. And we need to wonder, God supplying all our needs, sometimes even our wants, the material things. It's not just that. It may include that. But he also says, if you don't think 
that you have a choice. If you don't, or I'm sorry, if you don't think that God hates sin and judges sin and want to kindle His anger and wrath against it, I, I wouldn't want to be in the hands of, of an angry God. I want God's blessing. Um, and if you don't think that you have God's blessing, can I just encourage you? Visit a third world country once. Um, I was kind of a little bit humorous, humorously laughing the other day, uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, we were out here messing around on a Friday night. We were uh, mowing the yards a little bit. And Gary Newhart brought over one of the nationals who's in, you know, going around right now. His name is Peter Nielsen. And uh, his brother is actually on his way to the U.S. Uh, in the next few days. Um, at any rate, Peter was wanting to do some lawn mowing. He hadn't been on a rider, riding lawnmower before in his life. And so uh, Gary gives him his little rider and says, Hey, just hit, hit, hit pastor's front yard. That was unique in itself. No corners, no edging, just circles, throwing dirt. Never done it before. And, uh, and I'm kind of watching from a distance, kind of going, because <laughs> I catch Jake out of the corner of my eye, and he's going. <laughs> and then I see Jake in the backyard, and I say, Jake, don't worry, just lower it, lower it one level, and we'll, we'll straighten it out tomorrow. He goes, Dad, if I lower it, we're going to spin more dirt. Or he told Don that it was already as low as it could go. But uh, Peter comes over and he kind of gets my attention. He goes, Pastor Ken, he says, the, the motor fails. The motor fails. I said, the motor's fails. Yeah, yeah, motor fails. Out of gas, out of gas. Motor's failing. It's out of gas. And uh, keep in mind, Mike and I and Gary were just in Africa and I'm about to see, show you where this comes together. I said, oh, Peter, I got a whole five-gallon gas can it's full it's full i said go ahead and fill it up so i tell him it's just right right over there and so he goes over there and i i see him grab it and i'm hitting the backside and and so forth and we're all working out here and all of a sudden i see him going again what's the assumption he filled up the gas tank right about five minutes later he says it's failed again and i'm sitting there going what's going on with the mower I said, uh, did you put gas? Yeah, I put gas. I put gas. So I go over and look at it, and it's empty. He goes, I just put a little. Just put a little. And I'm sitting there going, no, fill it up. Fill, fill the whole little half gallon up. <laughs> but in Africa, all over Africa, when we were there for this over two weeks, everywhere we went, we had to stop for gas five times. Because they'll go into this gas station and put $3 in. They go up the road and $3 more. And go down this way and drive for 20 minutes and $3 more. Little by little. Because they, I don't, I, 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 they're kind of thinking about the whole picture of, I, I may not have, uh, something else may come up. I may have to use it over here. And I don't want to put too much in at once because I might need it over here. Little by little. And I thought to myself, how many of us, in all honesty, when you go to the gas station, do you put $3 in? Yeah, and their gas is about the same price as ours right now, just under $4 a gallon. So they'll put 3 $4 in. When's the last time we... I can remember some days in college doing that. 
But in our culture, I mean, you might not fill it up, but you don't put 3 or $4 in. Right? We are blessed. You go to some other third world countries where they have nothing, and you realize just how blessed we are. We forget that. We forget how good God is. And to think about this, as born-again believers, we have the hope of heaven. What greater blessing is there? Think about that. When I think about where is our hope, for whatever reason, this man in Jeremiah 17.5, this is what the Lord says, the man who trusts in mankind, who makes man his, or leans on the flesh of man, that's going to be cursed. But the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. His hope is in the Lord. Blessing and health as a well-nourished tree bring fruits. Psalm chapter 1 talks about this. Remember Psalm 1? It's one of the most familiar passages we have. Psalm 1 verse 3. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's blessing. Psalm 92 verse 14 says this, They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green. Talking about verse 13, Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green. To declare the Lord is just, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Jeremiah 17, 8. Hosea 14, 8. There are so many definite distinctions between the man who puts his trust in the Lord versus the man who places his trust in man. We need these reminders. And we need to remember that God will judge our hearts. Look at Revelation chapter 20. We're almost through. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God will judge. And there will be a day when our trust will be called into question. And I hope that we can honestly say before God, our trust is in Him. My life backs that up. I live for Him and for Him alone. Because in that day, we'll not be able to hide it. I find it amazing in this world, we can hide a lot of things from our fellow friends, right? We really can. We can come to church, and we can bring our Bibles, and we can you know, talk to someone, and even talk to lingo, and you know, we're good at Christianese along with English, and 
we can you know have the words out there and everyone we we think we know where each other's at and we can put on a really good front but there'll be a day that you will not be able to disguise who you really are before God he'll know where our trust is he will know whether or not we're truly following him or not and I tell you in that day ultimately the blessing and the curse will be distinguished in that day, we will stand before God, and there'll be no escape. And that's why he said in the Jeremiah passage, or in the first part, or in chapter 16, going into chapter 17, there's nothing hidden from God. He sees everything. The cracks, the crevices. What man cannot see in our own lives is clearly seen, visible by God. And he knows where our confidence is. I don't know, but that's a startling reminder. That's a startling reminder of where's our confidence? Where's our trust? Who are we depending on? And simply over and over, as God judges man for putting his confidence in man, ultimately he'll bring glory back to himself because he's going to be revealed that I am Yahweh. I am God. And what's he say? One day, Acts 4, every one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I would rather do it of my own volition or at least, at least in this mindset of I want to willingly place my trust and confidence and boast in the Lord now than to have to deal with it one day and see by experiencing the curse. I'd love to see it we truly are walking and focusing on God. That's a challenge. And I really do believe part of this challenge is that it is a choice. He willingly puts his trust in man. He willingly turns his heart from God. Just like the person says, I'm going to put my trust and confidence in God. Is it easy always? God's word says we walk by faith, not by sight. Why? Because sight is easier to see. Those of you that have gone through sicknesses and illnesses, wouldn't it be nice just to say, you know what, I'm going to do this procedure, it's all done. Because that's what happens. We don't know where it's going to end. Some of you would like to say, well, if I just, if I, if I just trust God, I'm going to stop this job and God's going to open one over here. If we could see what was going to happen, we'd do it immediately. Or we would say, oh, it scares me to death. I don't want no part of it. See, that's why we just have to constantly keep our trust in Him. And know that God makes no mistakes. And every time He allows something in our life, it's for His own glory and our good. The question is, do we trust Him? Do we trust Him? I would think, looking at the life of Asa, especially with this all close, I would think, looking at his life, he saw God do some miraculous things. Over and over... I mean, God just, just, God showed up. And yet, he took his focus off him at the end. He had a history. But you know, we see it all the time. People who start out doing well, but where are they now? We need to stay focused. Stay trusting. Knowing that God's in control. Let's pray.